Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are the podcast division of the movie review website swampflix.com. Podcast division. Do we get like badges for that? Because <laughs> I want a badge now. <laughs> what I should be sending out is royalty checks, but for negative money, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to pay for like server hosting fees. Um, <laughs> But I'm mentioning the website as the central part of this because we are based in New Orleans and we are recording this in the days leading up to Mardi Gras. And you were probably hearing this in the days after Mardi Gras. So this is like a liminal space pod. Happy Mardi Gras to you, listener. And I tried to pick something vaguely Mardi Gras themed today. We can judge how well I did on that later in this conversation. <laughs> but uh, it's been a short span since the last time we recorded since we're doing this early. Has anybody had time to watch anything since our last episode? I have mainly watched a lot of Columbo, so no. Those are like movie-length movies. Right? Yeah. I was going to say, they're movie-length. Um, some are obviously better than others. Uh, the one I watched the other night, I was especially like, oh, this one's kind of rough. Um, it's like the one with like the white Arabs and stuff. I don't know how much Columbo you know, but basically there's like a murder plot involving like this uh he's kind of an ambassador uh from this like made up country during like a king coming in and a ploy for power and all of that but it's also very like you know this was made in the late 70s about middle eastern people so um yeah i mean it's it's not the worst example of that i've ever seen but it certainly Certainly is something. I rewatched that one because I watched all of them within yeah. like the past eighteen months, and so I remember that one being one of the like plots. But I could not tell you what the plot of that one was to save my yeah. life. I, all I remember is Columbo at one point in the kitchen uh, oh, causing yeah. the scene, and yeah, that's, he that's like all just that I can like recall. starts eating food in the kitchen, and they're just like, "That's the king's food." So I looked this up yeah. just now as y'all were talking. The episode is called A Case of Immunity. Yeah. And the reason I looked it up is because I know that, like, you know, um, a young Spielberg directed an episode. You know, they'd have, like, legitimate directors would direct these. And yeah. I looked up this episode, and the guy, one of his best known for movies is The Baby from the 70s, which is one of my favorite trash films. Oh, well, I could see that it's like an exploitation film about this like adult baby that this uh, house full of women raises um to act like a child even though he's in his like 30s that sounds fun <laughs> highly recommend how erotic is it yeah that is the other question. um i think probably if you have an adult baby fetish already you could probably squint at it the right way but it's mm. supposed to make you it's supposed to ick you out it's mm. not supposed to like turn okay you on. good so insufficient eroticism and it will be fine to watch. It won't like awaken anything in you. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to create any deviance here at Swamp Flicks. No. More of that to come later in the future <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Just keep billboarding that. Yeah, Boomer, have you watched anything that's not Columbo? Uh, well, I have also continued to go down um, the list of these DC animated movies. Again, I'm not going to really like dwell on these a whole lot. I have now watched 13 of them. So of the 52 that I've set out to to watch and write about, I've watched and written about 13. So I am a quarter of the way through 
um, nice. which is a, a nice like landmark to be at. Uh, they're still a really mixed bag. Some of them are great. Some of them are mediocre. One or two of them have been like really terrible. However, what I will say is that I uh, watched another classic because we just finished up January and January for me is always classics month because that's when you are able to like finally shirk off the responsibility of having to figure out what the best of the year is going to be and just be like, okay, now I can turn my attention to the past. And I think that we've talked about this before, but my friend called this a neurosis when I told him about it. I don't think it's a neurosis. It's more like a little game that I play with myself. But every year I try to get the average year of release of everything that I watch other than new releases down to my birth year or lower. And so far this year, I've been doing pretty well uh, since my average right now is 1977. Can I interject here? There is a self-cheat going on with the two things you just mentioned in that you were watching a lot of these like 2010s and 2000s animated films for a series called The Not-So-New 52 on Swampflix.com. Well, that hits your digital newsstand every week on Wednesday. Uh, I forgot to mention. And you also forgot to mention that you were not including those titles in this. Um, they really juke the stats. It really yeah. jukes the stats. It's this, you know, it's the same thing where I don't include new releases because I'm always going to see more of those. However, even if you include those, my average is 1991, which, Not bad. according to very conflicting information I've given over the years about my age, might be before my birth year. I just like the idea that you'd um, like paint yourself in a corner where you're just like getting really deep into the milieu of like George Melius or um, oh, yeah. Charlie Chaplin or something like that. You're like really reaching back to like the vaudeville days. Well, so far, the oldest movie I saw this year was Citizen Kane, which we already talked about. And then The Cranes Are Flying and The Seventh Seal, which both both came out in 57. But the funny thing is, not counting absolute new releases, the most recent thing I saw was from 2012. It's uh, And it's if you arrange it in my spreadsheet, like A to Z, oldest to newest, there's like real movies for, ranging from 1941 to 2007 that I've seen. And then just these like cartoon things from 2009 to 2012. <laughs> it is funny watching uh, stuff like the Green Lantern First Flight enter the Criterion Collection uh, on our letterbox page where it says <laughs> what we've been recently watching. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Soy Cuba and the Green Lantern. Yeah, nice. I... It really makes me feel like I'm losing my mind. I don't know. It sounds like a fun balance. Yeah, it's probably good for your brain. Yeah. I, my, my brain does feel more elastic lately. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's working. I don't know. Um, I did see uh, a new release this week, uh, and that was American Fiction, which, Brandon, I believe that you saw and wrote about. Yeah, it was all right. I like Jeffrey Wright a lot, and it was a good vehicle for him as, like, you know, the smartest guy in the room at all times and uh, how that can both be charming and uh, make you your own worst enemy. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, it definitely would have ended up in my top 20 last year if I had seen it in time. It just didn't hit. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that it was as funny and touching as uh, the holdovers. Like there's something about those two together that it feels like they're in conversation with each other, not to like, you know, immediately compare it to something made by white artists. but like, you know, I, I do think that it might have edged out dream scenario, at least, you know, somewhere on that list. I hear that comparison 
both as a positive and a negative, and that those are both very uh, ingratiating films about like caustic people. So like both Jeffrey Wright's character in American Fiction and um, Paul Giamatti's character in The Holdovers are both like these academic guys who kind of lash out at other people because they're already kind of lonely and have kind of like studied themselves into isolation and don't know how to interact with other people anymore. But both movies really want you to like those guys. Like it's not like an older Alexander Payne movie where like that would be the butt of a joke and you would kind of like dig into the worst qualities of Paul Giamatti's character. You're supposed to like find their soft spots a little bit and uh, watch them warm up to the people around them, which Jeffrey Wright definitely does with his brother character played by Sterling K. Brown and the American fiction one. Yeah. And maybe 2023 was just the year for those guys in movies because dream scenario is also kind of about that, the lonely academic, although he is much more responsible for his suffering than the other two are. I don't know. Yeah, it's a meaner movie. He's like the butt of the joke in that one. And yeah. And the butt of the joke in this one is, is the system. And, you know, I, I won't pretend like the points that it makes are subtle. Uh, they're not, but I, I, you know, that doesn't bother me at all. It's still, you know, it's been, it's been a few years since, you know, uh, we had all of these companies saying that they were going to really lean into like, you know, uh, DEI initiatives and really dig into their systemic problems. And it, uh, in those three years, they've like made those statements and then just rolled everything back. You know, every single time that any one of these streaming services has to cut something, it's always from those initiatives, right? You you see it in in Variety, you see it in Deadline, it's constant. And so even though the messages of this one have the subtlety of like a clanging anvil, I still appreciate it that it's like, okay, you know, we're not, we're not, no one is giving up on at least trying to point it out. Yeah. And in case you don't know the premise, uh, this oh, yeah. black author is trying to sell his books, um, and people are like, well, why aren't you writing black books? And he's, well, I'm black, and I'm writing books, so they are black books. But what they want is this very marketable black voice where he like centers his racial identity and kind of plays it up for a white audience. And uh, eventually frustrated that he can't get his own academic work published, he basically pulls up producers and writes the most offensive <laughs> racial stereotype book he can. And it ends up being a hit. Now, what's strange about the movie is that half of it is a broad satire about like this kind of NPR liberalism. that's looking for this very marketable version of like quote unquote black voices that are friendly to white audiences. But the other half of it is this like very tender family drama where he kind of has to go home and learn how to like soften up to other people even though he's got this very combative attitude with his publishing industry. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a strange balance between those two things. And I think the thing that like really makes it work is just that Jeffrey Wright like deserves to be a star in stuff like this. And like there aren't a lot of roles for people that hit the exact notes that he does to be like up front and center. I guess you could say the same about Paul Giamatti as well. There aren't a lot of like character actor vehicles anymore, you know? No. Yeah. Um, and the two of them have been around for a long time. And it's good to see these like movies that felt feel like they're custom built to highlight how great of an actor they are. And I liked them both about the same, to be honest. I really appreciated like how much of this was just a character piece. I really appreciated 
um, the the neighbor that he has the relationship with. As a longtime fan of Girlfriends, I really appreciated seeing Tracy Ellis Ross. She was hilarious in this, amazing, wonderful. Sterling K. Brown is doing like really amazing work here too. He brings a lot of subtlety to a role that you know could be like a really broad joke in any other movie but he like really plays it close to the vest here in a way that's really meaningful um yeah i i do think that this would have been on my list um personally but unfortunately i just didn't see it in time but you know it's still out in theaters now so you listener if you are tired from mardi gras and you just want to go see something that's charming and funny and uh, will also make you angry at certain points this is the one that i would recommend and then finally just the other night i watched the movie stalker the tarkovsky movie yes which i had never actually seen i like that movie okay i i like tarkovsky though so you know i love sliaris like i love that movie i do too it's one of my favorites actually I didn't care for this one. I actually, you know, you know me. Yeah. No one, no one knows my taste as well as as you two who listen to sit here and listen to me blather on about it, and of course our dear listeners. But like you know, I am not opposed to a boring movie. You know, I love a boring movie. I would watch three hours. I I would and have watched three hours of turn of the century Italian peasant farming. Okay, but I I liked that movie too. Yeah, there, I'm glad I'm glad that you recall it with fondness. Yeah, I, I'm just saying like this movie did not connect with me. Like there were things about it that were obviously wonderful, and you know I'm really interested in Soviet cinema right now. Having yeah, just watched <laughs> Soy Kuba and the cranes are flying, and I haven't seen Slyaris since I was in college, but I'm like excited to revisit that one. But my friend came over and he he just got a letterboxed, like he just made an account, and he was like, "Here is the list of movies that I put together." And Stalker was on it, and I remembered, oh, you know, uh, during one of the like recent cold months, whenever we had nothing but time to spend indoors. I saw that Kat had it on her computer and I was like, oh, we should watch that. I've never seen it. And she said, I've seen it and I don't want to see it again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. She may not have been that direct. She might have said, I've seen it. It's kind of boring. I'm not in the mood for it. I might have I might have made it a little bit more uh, dramatic in my retelling. But l- having now seen it, I don't know that I have any interest in ever watching it again either. This to me was a probably the closest I've ever been aligned on what a vegetables movie is with what y'all define it as, I think. Yeah, it is kind of a vegetables movie. I don't agree with that. I well like it's it's hard to explain. It's like a mood piece, not it like is. a it's not yeah, like a classroom tool. You're right, it isn't but it is a mood piece. And you know, when I think about something like we all loved Ennis Main last year. We oh all God, love yeah. tone pieces. We all love mood pieces. We all love these like filmic tone poems. And Brandon, I I did go back and listen to your episode with James from like eight years oh ago. Whenever yes, y'all so talked about it. Well, I was like, oh, should I write about this? Let me check and see it. I love when I, I watch a movie and then I'm like, huh, 
should now listen to that podcast episode that Brandon recorded a while ago, and it'll be like three years back and be like, oh, <laughs> behind. It's long enough ago that you'd have to remind me what, what my opinion on this movie was, yeah. other than I was mad at Tarkovsky for giving his crew members cancer by dragging them through these like yeah i was gonna say that was the biggest uh thing your feelings are generally positive okay yeah it's definitely a patience tester though it is it wasn't effusive praise but your feelings were positive okay this is like the weirdest compliment for films that i can come up with but i have it for tarkovsky's movies I love the way he just films flowing water. Like, nobody films flowing water like he does. And it's so mesmerizing. I remember that more in, um, was it Mirror? There's, like, images of, like, um, objects just below the surface of, like, a babbling brook in that yes, one. Yes, yeah. There's a lot of it here. There's a lot uh, of it Maybe I'm mixing Paris. them up. It, no, you, it is here, and you mentioned it in your podcast eight years ago. Oh. All right, well, there you go. Yeah. It's in all of his movies, probably, because it's just, I think he just has, like, a, a fascination with it, which is fair, because I have a fascination with the way he does it. I would call Andre Rublev his Eat Your Vegetables movie for oh, me. Oh, yep. That's one about this, like, village that's, like, erecting this gigantic bell for a church, and it's, like, it's very much like Tree of Wood and Clogs in that it's this very long, meditative piece about, you know collective action and poverty and yeah religious iconography and stuff like that especially religious iconography in a country that is like anti-religious iconography right yeah it has a lot of interesting context like historically uh and that's kind of what makes it eat your vegetables for me is like okay there's an important reason to watch this but i'm not you know traditionally entertained in any kind of like practical minute-to-minute way Stalker is the one I've seen that, like, at least kind of meets me on my home turf. Like, I, I understand this kind of, like, sci-fi fantasy space yeah, that he's I working in say, here. I like the sci-fi fantasy space. And, like, yeah, it's crappy to film in these places. But, like, oh, if these places aren't the most fascinating-looking places, I don't know. Yeah, he, he finds spaces in this film that look like antique covers for frank herbert's dune series or something like he finds these yeah. like yes. really gorgeously haunting environments um because they are literally haunted by man's follies yeah. uh and the imagery is poetic enough to be worth the like three shots of espresso you need to keep your eyes peeled open for the what is it, like a three-hour runtime yeah yeah i'd be lying if i said i remembered more than that though because it is it's a really long movie and it's been so long since i saw it and it's you know, what is, I guess, interesting about it? What I'll say that we're positives. One of the things that y'all brought up is it's like Wizard of Oz-esque structure where you go from this monochromatic environment into this like verdant, beautiful land of color once they get past the border and into the zone. I will say that I read the book or at least the story or maybe the i can't remember if it was an entire novel or if it was like an, a short story collection and then this was just one of the stories in it but i did read that in high school and i remember it very fondly so i would give that a big recommendation for anyone who's interested in just the narrative but not necessarily the way that it's interpreted by this particular director i was really struck by how much this was clearly 
an influence on Jeff Vandermeer? Yes. Okay, you did just answer why I'm so fond of him. He's like one of my favorite writers. So yeah, yeah. I mean, the Southern Reach trilogy is really <sighs> present here. Yeah, uh, especially because I, if I remember correctly, the characters in the book had names. Whereas no. here, they are only... No, I mean, in the um, Roadside Picnic, the the original text on which Stalker is based. Oh, yeah, yeah. I seem to remember that they had names, whereas in this film, the characters only have titles, just as they do in Annihilation, which is the, you know, the Jeff Vandermeer novel. Yeah. Yeah. And the one that was adapted um, by Alex Garland uh, several years ago. Very well, in my opinion. Very well. Totally different from the book, but also very good. Yeah. And I understand everything that was happening here. I understand, like, the metaphor of, like, you know, uh, the religious thinker, the scientist, and the, you know, imaginarian going on this, like, journey together. But I just, it just did not connect with me the way that, like, Slayaris did or, you know, other Soviet film that I've watched of late. Now, I will say that not terribly long ago, I did find a copy of his film Nostalgia on VHS. So my question to you is, should I try and find a better version of that movie and watch it? Or should I watch Nostalgia on tape? I don't know. I haven't seen that one. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Uh, So I don't know. I think people who are film nerds will always tell you to have a better version of it. Which, it makes sense in a way, but I also want to laugh because I have a copy of The Red Shoes on VHS. <laughs> yeah, but that Blu-ray restoration of The Red Shoes is like a gorgeous sight to behold. I was going to say, I also have the Blu-ray, but okay, I love that movie so much. Anyway. I kind of get VHS as a format for like yeah. pizza and beer horror movies. I don't know that I get it so much as like letting films rot there. Like It's, not, it's like a good thing that they're being cleaned up. It, it, yes. I mean... There are companies that go overboard and like blow out the grain. And lately, uh, James Cameron has been using like AI to like smooth out oh my God. things he considers problems with his 90s movies that aren't problems at all. That stuff's bullshit. But like for the most part, I'm very pro seeing a movie that's visually beautiful in HD instead of on VHS. I will say right now, uh, my setup with my VCR, it's very clear. Um, and I don't know if we've ever shared this, but you know, given the fact that VHS does degrade over time, I don't know that we ever talked about this on mic, but I used to collect horror movies on VHS, especially of the beer and pizza variety like you're talking about. And it was really good hunting whenever I was in college, because that was the time when sort of the last bastions of VHS rental places were going out of business. Not that I'm happy that they did, but I at least was able to like save some real classics, you know? So for many years, I had all three basket cases on tape and all four Silent Night, Deadly Nights, and a lot of other weird, obscure things like uh, the Australian horror movie Cassandra and like Blood Diner, which Blood Diner didn't have any release other than VHS for many, many years. Same thing for Motel Hell, right? But I did go ahead and sell those about two years ago, just because with them starting to degrade, I wanted someone else to have the chance to experience them before they were gone. But 
when I cleared up all that space, I did start buying every VHS tape that I can whenever I go to an estate sale. And that's been very rewarding in its own right as well. Um, I have been watching recently a tape that um, it's someone was taping mostly like the Disney Channel Sunday night movies off of oh, wow. the Des Moines broadcast from 1985 to 1986. Oh, this tape wow. is older than I am, and it is in shockingly good quality. Like, I've never seen a tape like that is, you know, for uh, consumer use rather than commercial use that is held up this well. So that is one of the things that I have been doing. Uh, none of those would I really consider to be movies. So I will go ahead and, and leave it at that and ask you, Brandon, what have you been watching? I'm still in my Turner Classic Movies era right now, to be honest. I'm taking it very easy. I can only really report on a couple late-to-the-game noirs that I watched recently. You know, like the film movement had its classic period before it even had a name uh, in the yeah. 30s and 40s when it was just like grimy American crime pictures, mostly on Poverty Row, like 80-minute runtimes, uh, and just like hyper-violence. They will shock you. Sorry, that's yes. just the old poster talking in me. <laughs> But I didn't watch any of those this week. I watched the later ones that, like, when the studios got a little bloated towards the 50s and this genre became more melodramatic, uh, you know, movie stars, they started being in color, which, you know, was an expense that people had to spring for. Um, was Niagara in this era? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, I felt so. Marilyn Monroe movie. Yeah. Which we watched that for... Um, a Marilyn Monroe episode last year. And it was very good. Yeah, I really like that one. A lot more talk about shredded wheat than you would expect. <laughs> That's true. But the two I did watch, one was called Party Girl from 1958. Not to be confused with the 1990s classic starring Parker Posey, which is, you know, a perfect film with no faults. Uh, this is a film with many faults. It is a late period noir starring Sid Charisse, who is most notable for her role in Singing in the Rain. She does that very balletic dance number with Gene Kelly where it goes into a dream world and uh, is basically the dream ballet sequence that most people cite when they're thinking of that mm -hmm. trope. Um, here she plays a showgirl in 1930s Chicago, and she is a party girl in that she gets paid by these mobsters to go to these parties and act as a act as the entertainment. So like the implication is that it's like a soft form of prostitution and all these like showgirls are earning extra money off stage by sleeping with these mobsters. But she, the movie is very specific because it's like Hays Code era, does not sleep with people at these parties. She like shows up, works the room, gets people drunk, and then slips out before anything actually happens. Um, and while at these parties, she catches the eye of the mobster's lawyer who's on retainer. And they start this romance and decide they want to get out of the mafia life. Uh, but, you know, it's easier said than done. And the mafia boss does not want to let either of them go and uses her as collateral to keep the lawyer in line to help keep getting people off for murders they obviously committed. Um, it's an okay, like, middle of the afternoon technicolor melodrama with some noir elements. The reason I'm bringing it up is because uh, there's a lot of talk about Dream Ballets recently uh, because both Maestro and Barbie had one. Mm -hmm. um, I did not watch Maestro, so I can't really talk on that one, but Barbie in particular, the I'm Just Ken song, yeah. fully references Sid Charisse's 
dream ballet sequence with Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. Like the soft pastel pinks and blues in that giant like studio warehouse space yeah. where it just looks like there's a limitless void with like no walls. And um in the in the Singing in the Rain, Stitchery said that very long trailing scarf that just like was impossibly like a mile long and just kind of floated in this huge warehouse um and you know i'm just ken very directly references that moment and honestly one of one of the things about barbie that really struck me was just how in line it felt with like old hollywood entertainment and just reminded me that like hollywood can't put on a show still and what's interesting about party girl is that it also references that exact dream ballet sequence but it has the star of that sequence. And, and, you know, this is her own vehicle. And she's on stage doing this showgirl routine. She's basically stripping for this audience of drunks and mobsters. And the movie slips out of reality into this sort of like Busby Berkeley style stage show so that it's no longer something you actually could be watching from the crowd. It just becomes Hollywood magic for a few minutes. And the same pink and blue pastel color palette starts. And she starts mugging for the camera in these impossible angles that you would not see from the audience. And also she starts doing like ballet moves instead of stripper moves um, because she was a ballet dancer before she was an actress. And it was just very funny to see this like kind of sleezed up stripper-fied version of her dream ballet sequence that made her famous in this little three-minute segment of this very long middling noir otherwise. So I don't know if you have any interest in like dream ballets and Sid Charisse, uh, that's a really interesting moment of a movie that, you know, will test your patience in a different way and sort of a pleasant way where you can enjoy your afternoon tea, maybe doze off for a few minutes. And you won't miss much of the plot. And that was also directed by Nicholas Ray, who did a bunch of really great movies. So it's, it's got a good visual eye. It's just a little sleepy. The other one I saw, though, was from 1949, um, starring James Cagney. It's called White Heat. James Cagney, most famous, I think, in the noir space for Public Enemies in the 1930s. So this is like, I think, like 15 years after the movie that made him famous. And he was a big enough star, though, that the studio really wanted him to do another noir to like kind of cash in on that fame. And in White Heat in 1949, he decided he would finally do it if they let him influence the character like he had like uh, script influence over what the movie was going to be and he basically wanted to make a mob boss who was as psychotic as a movie studio would allow and oh, wow. he is fucking terrifying in this movie uh <laughs> the mobster's name is cody jarrett uh so he's like the scariest cody that you'll ever see in a movie <laughs> he uh he starts off on this um, train heist where he like jumps onto a moving train and anybody who gets a good look at his face, he shoots indiscriminately. Like he just murders probably five or six people in the first few minutes of the movie, uh, sometimes to like cover his tracks and sometimes seemingly just for fun. Uh, and then one of his goons gets his face steamed off by the, the steam engine of the train. Oh, uh, dang. And he just leaves the guy to die under this like pile of bandages uh, after they you know, escape to the hidey hole. They're going to run from the cops. He's just like, well, we can't be dragging you along. You're, you're going to tip off the police and just like leaves his trusted goon to like rot alone with his wounds. Um, what's interesting is that beyond just the psychopathic violence, he also has this kind of Freudian relationship with his mother. So he's a big tough guy, mob boss most of the time. But he also has these fainting spells, these sort of like migraines that make him like 
completely just lose track of where he is in the room and kind of collapse. So he needs his mom on hands at all times. So everyone's scared of this like big tough mobster guy, but he also needs his mommy, who's also a mean, cruel person. <laughs> that sounds like some actual mob history. <laughs> there was like a mob boss that was like a lady who had a bunch of sons that yeah. The fabulous Baker boys. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She does call the shots in some ways, uh, but she also is just there to coddle him when he gets his headaches. And uh, the movie like really pushes this sort of like psychological angle on the character when I feel like maybe 10 years earlier, it would have been just scary to see someone like shoot indiscriminately with a Tommy gun uh, and these like big massacres without actually like paying attention to the psychology of the character in any way. And I happened to watch this around the same time I started watching The Sopranos uh, for the first time. And I was shocked that they're kind of the same deal. Like, the soprano starts with Tony having these fainting spells because he's having these like panic attacks and he has to start going to this psychiatrist played by Lorraine Brocco. Um, and that kind of gives the show its episodic structure as he like narrates his problems to this therapist and it kind of like helps break up what would otherwise just be Goodfellas part do. <laughs> they, uh, they make a lot of references on the Sopranos to older mobster movies I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm only like maybe six or seven episodes in the show and they've already referenced the godfather a bunch of times scorsese himself makes a uh cameo in like episode three that's not him unfortunately oh it's not it's okay, not that's very I funny. it was him too because I, I love that scene <laughs> where he's like couldn't do it i loved it <laughs> um but unfortunately it is not actually Marty. I'll have to um, edit my review of White Heat to uh, save face because I've re referenced this happening on the show. Oh, man. Uh, Scorsese lookalike uh, makes an appearance on the show as Scorsese. Imagine being a Scorsese impersonator, like that being your job. <laughs> <laughs> pretty sweet. I don't pretty know. limited gigs. Yeah. I think The Sopranos probably, you know, was a nice paycheck. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Like, I'm sure. James Cagney movies will come up as I get into later seasons of The Sopranos. I don't know that White Heat is as looming of a topic as uh, Public Enemies, which is probably the bigger influence. But um, I can definitely see parallels in like the sort of like Norman Batesifying of uh, the mobster figure, where like it, it's really about this sort of like pathological ailments that the job gives you, like the the stress of being in charge of all these people, the cops being on your payroll, but always at your heels, ready to take you down, uh, just being overwhelming, and you need this like comforting uh, mother figure around uh, this hateful woman in both cases. The the mother on The Sopranos is so funnily awful. I love how terrible she is. She's the worst. She's the worst. I cackle at every line reading because she is so oh, yeah. horrible, but it's hilarious. Um, yeah, so I don't know. If you like The Sopranos, you probably like White Heat. I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, it's, it's a movie that's been around for over half a century. I'm sure Ben Mankiewicz has done a better job introducing it on TCM, but I'm doing my best here. You don't have a like a, a movie pair, uh, dinner pairing for us? Oh, shit. <laughs> Steamed vegetables, I guess, to go with that guy's yeah. face? Yeah, that's, that's a good plan. I don't know. Missed dinner in a movie. What a great concept. What's your name? Block. You're hanging out with the wrong kind of people, Block. What kind would you suggest I hang out with? Someone who's more 
up your alley? Maybe I'll take you up on that sometime. And do what? Take you bowling? I don't like bowling. Neither do I. Well, speaking of like picking up um, old movies on dead formats and also um, my recent just really shrinking away into easy to watch noirs as the Mardi Gras season has been weighing on my brain. I picked Tightrope from 1984, a movie I originally saw on a $3 Big Lots DVD purchase a long time ago and uh, probably donated to a Goodwill not long after because I thought the movie was a little boring. But um, I'd think about it every now and then. Uh, mostly because there aren't a lot of movies from the 70s and 80s that are set in New Orleans. There's a lot of stuff more recently because of the tax credits that Louisiana offers for productions to come down here. Uh, so you see a lot of movies shot. Yeah, you see a lot of movies shot in Georgia and Louisiana. Um, Atlanta's been competing pretty hard in a way Louisiana has not in the past few years. But in the 80s, it was a little more of a novelty to have a shot on location noir starring clint eastwood on the the actual streets of the french quarter and i think about tightrope sometimes because in the movie there's a lot of like strange geography so like there's like a sequence where clint eastwood is chasing his murder suspect in the cemeteries at the end of canal street and then they turn a corner and all of a sudden they're in jackson square yeah Mm -hmm. both thomas and i were like oops <laughs> and then um, there's another one where he is on a somewhat like a soft date with uh, Genevieve Bajold at the French market, and they go to put the groceries in her car, and they're looking at the city from across the river. Like there's a lot of like yes. strange geography that you would only notice if you live in the city, which kind of gives you a insight into the maddening life of someone who lives in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, which I'm sure is a pretty say... common occurrence. It just reminds me of like hearing about people from New York watching Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. (laughs) How nothing there is in the right order. But I can't say I thought about the movie much beyond that in the years since I first watched it. But I did want to revisit for a couple of reasons. One, I have since fallen in love with the movie Cruising, directed by William Friedkin. And this always seemed to me like the straight version of Cruising. I get that. In Cruising, Al Pacino plays this undercover detective who's a straight man who goes into the leather gay clubs of New York City and um, kind of loses himself in that culture a little bit where there's a lot of playing in the text about whether he actually is queer and just isn't fully aware of it or if he knows that he's queer and is maybe the killer himself and is chasing a phantom and not an actual um, serial murderer of the gentlemen who frequent those clubs. And that movie has a very documentary look on leather bar culture in 1980s New York. In Tightrope, uh, which is somewhat contemporary, Clint Eastwood plays a New Orleans detective who is tracking a serial killer in the sex clubs, brothels, um, bathhouses of New Orleans, um, frequently in a way that feels like it's actually gay culture with straight people just sort of injected into it. So like there's a scene where him and Genevieve Bajold are flirting in a gym in a way that felt like it should have been two men to me. Or there's another scene where he's in a bathhouse and he has random sex with a woman who has a vibrator attached to her hand uh, that felt like it felt like hookup culture from a different 
angle. Like it, it, it didn't feel like a scene from Colette's or something. It felt like it was actually like two men hooking up in a, in a sauna. But the dynamic is kind of the same as Al Pacino's character in that movie where we know who the killer is that Clint Eastwood is chasing. It is another cop that we see the face of in the very first sequence where um, this cop trails a sex worker back to her apartment and um, offers to help her get inside safely, but ends up murdering her um, and really strong warning here, um, sexually assaulting her for hours. And a lot of sexual assault is referenced throughout this film. Thankfully, I don't remember any being depicted for any length of time. Yeah, none of it's really depicted. No. Yeah, it's it's all like kind of discussed after the fact in these like sort of evidence rooms where all these scientists are like looking for hair follicles and like semen samples, and right. s- Saliva and stuff like that. It's all very CSI. Yeah, I was gonna say stuff that reminded me of old forensic files, yeah. which is a show I love. I even kind yeah. of thought about Silence of the Lambs and that like this is a very yes. early representation of like forensic science in a movie. Yes. Very much, yeah. But but in those like sterile environments, they are going over the details of pretty horrific stuff. The same way that if you're like ever walking and your parents watching um, Special Victims Unit or something like that, you're like horrified by the dialogue and how they're just yeah. kind of passively taking it in. Like this movie is sleazy, but it's um it's not leering about the sexual assault stuff. It's sleazy because Clint Eastwood's character is sleazy. Uh, he is a cop chasing a cop. And there are more details about the character that he's um, tracking down later in the movie that I, I guess you could spoil. It doesn't really matter. It's not that kind of mystery. What's more mysterious is the affinity he feels with this fellow cop. Um, he is frequenting the same brothels and bathhouses and, you know, sex work hotspots that the killer is. And he is familiar with all these women who are being killed. To the point where it becomes this cat and mouse game where every time Clint Eastwood has sex, the next day that person ends up dead in the river or dead on the banks. You know, like there's a um, link between him and the killer. And it's all about his kind of like sexual addiction to these one night stands and these sort of like transactional um, sexual encounters. Uh, His way out of that is a flirtation with uh, Genevieve Bajold, who is playing a rape crisis center representative who is trying to get him to warn the women of the city that they are under attack by the serial killer who is the same criminal do- doing all these horrific acts and not, you know, just sort of like random things happening to these sex workers. Like she wants everyone on alert and he's not taking her seriously, but gradually learns to respect her and treat her like a human being and not someone he can just proposition for sex and then walk away from. And I guess the one aspect of his life I have not mentioned yet is that that's what he's like outside the house. At home, he's a very wholesome family man who raises two daughters on his own. And the movie's kind of about that sort of duality where... I was going to say, there's a lot of like half light on his face to like emphasize the duality. It's like really, really like stylized and obvious, but it's... I don't yeah, know. there comes the moment. Kind of fun in that way. There comes the moment where he's like staring at himself in the mirror. He's like, "I'm gonna get you, you motherfucker! Yeah. I'm gonna track you down! <laughs> I'm gonna stop you!" And it's yes. like, "Yeah, man, you're talking to yourself." And I do. I I want to say, I wish we did not know who the killer was from the outset. This was a, would have been a much more interesting movie if we could have played with the idea that he was the killer to the point where. Kind of like 30 minutes in, I had gotten a little bored for a second. Then I was like, oh, wait a minute. 
what if it's him? What if he's the killer? And I was like, oh, wait, no, we already saw the killer's face. It can't be him. But for a moment, there was a much more interesting movie happening in my head. There's a lot of space for you to make up your own movie um, as this goes there along. Is. It's a very sleepy noir. It's not in a rush to entertain you. Uh, from what I understand, there was a lot of behind the scenes mess uh, in the production. A lot of people have hinted that Clint Eastwood kind of ghost directed the film after the actual credit director was kicked off set. I, I don't have any hot gossip on that. I just wanted to bring this up because it is a locally set noir and if you look up the the other reason this was on my mind recently is if you look up movies that are set in new orleans during mardi gras this movie pops up on those lists like that it documents a mardi gras celebration in the city and i had not remembered that being an aspect of the film at all and then watching it again (laughs) especially since it kind of feels like halloween it does seem like a halloween celebration yeah i think in general it's hard to film Mardi Gras. It's a really difficult <laughs> yes. form of chaos to accurately represent on screen and really get the sort of like jubilant citywide party vibe mm-hmm. like accurately depicted. And I think this movie actually does a good job with the parade that it yes. depicts. It's kind of like I the second so line. Too. Yeah. It, it kind of felt like Kalatozov. Uh, Kalatozov uh, or however you say it. It felt like one of his crowd shots from Koreans Are Flying or Soikuba. Like it, yeah, it and that carnival that spirit motion. that runs through um, yeah. Black Orpheus as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would actually say, well, first of all, as you noted already, this is a Halloween parade. Uh, there are jack-o'-lanterns everywhere. <laughs> People are just kind of misremembering it being Mardi Gras. because They it looks have and sounds like candy it. bags. Yeah. They do have candy bags. I I don't know if it's that or if it's just that like people who aren't us just see a party in New Orleans and are like, oh, that's Mardi Gras. Like, it's Mardi Gras, obviously. See, you know, <laughs> there's a parade. Yeah, someone doing like a review of this movie, and if a movie included like a second line, they would be like, "Oh, it's in New Orleans, and therefore Mardi Gras." I actually, I understand that impulse, and I thought that at first too. It was like, "Oh, they're kind of equating these two things that aren't the same." But the more I thought about it, like I just went to a Halloween-themed parade uh, last October in the quarter. And it didn't look that different from this. Like it was. No, it doesn't. There, there are walking parades that are off season. Um, usually, I don't attend them. I, I think like it's kind of gauche to celebrate carnival off season. But like, I don't know if you're gonna play a bunch of like novelty Halloween songs and like dress up in fun costumes and walk down the street. I'm not made of stone. Like I, I like to have fun with my friends. And this kind of felt like the New Orleans version of like a Halloween celebration. Yeah, in a way that felt accurate to me it's definitely not accurate to mardi gras because that's not what it is but i did i did feel like a genuine representation of the city um it it didn't feel phony to me no not at all and like you mentioned like the geography thing but like yeah i just kind of had to like let it go because i was just like yeah well you know new orleans is like a couple of areas you know we've got the cemeteries, Bourbon Street, and then everywhere else, and they're all connected. Yeah, the entrance, to, the entrance to Armstrong Park. Yeah, you know that that famous. Street, you know, uh, I I was really happy to see you know some. It, it is sort of a time capsule of the city at the time. One thing I, I yes. want to point out is, it's shocking to me that this movie was not originally conceived as being set in New Orleans. Like, originally, this was written to be set in San Francisco, which makes sense because 
Oh yeah, if it's a noir. Uh, well, yeah. well, and also like because it was based on like a series of like real strangulations that had happened in the eighties. I was gonna say Golden State Killer, but because it was once Clint Eastwood was attached, they were like, no, you can't have it in San Francisco because then it's just Dirty Harry again. They moved it to New Orleans, and it's shocking because that is one of the things that gives this movie so much life is like Mm -hmm. that it's set in what is you know for hollywood an unusual location one where you know it has there's the funny thing about new orleans is like it looks so different and it also looks exactly the same in this movie as it does now because like the skyline might change but like the streets don't and they're particularly trying to capture a um, view of the city that wouldn't change as dramatically too where like most of it is shot at night just after it rained like they are hosing down the streets for that kind of glittering um, street lamp bouncing off that French Quarter pavement. Yeah, in every shot. And yeah, if you've ever been to the quarter at night, um, it rained that afternoon. It's going to look exactly the same now as it did in 1984. Yeah, yeah, the names will have changed, but not much else. Not the shutters. Not the street. The sounds will have changed it a little bit too. Yeah, a lot more cover bands. There are a couple 80s specific images here that like wouldn't be here anymore. Um, like Pralines. Is that is that the name of the bar? That Pralines is I yeah I think Pralines is the gay bar or where um oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. directed to bar. go and meet uh, the gay client where he does indicate that he has had gay sex before. Yes, uh, he does. Yeah. which was interesting. I was not giving him a full credit. When I was calling him a, a fully straight man earlier. Well, he he wasn't interested yeah. anymore, so I don't know. He tried it once. He didn't like he it. He could have just been being polite, but I prefer as well to... I, I'm sure that Clint Eastwood thought that the character was just being polite, but I agree with all of us here that Detective <laughs> yeah. Block has sucked dick. He also um, makes tasteless jokes throughout the movie, uh, and that could have been yeah, one of them. Yeah. One, he references this the woman sandwich. becoming a sandwich because she had threesomes for money and uh, says that someone ate the sandwich after she was murdered. That's pretty fucked up. Someone ate the third part of the sandwich, yeah. I will say, yeah. that was the part of the movie where I was most confused because I was like, wait, is he supposed to be like delivering these sort of like one-liners, right? Like, yes. But he's delivering them with such straight sincerity as if he doesn't know that he's telling a joke that I was like, I don't, it, was he just the wrong choice for this performance? Like maybe he was, but then I came around on it. Yeah. The convoluted bowling one got a good laugh out of me. Yeah. Later. yeah. I enjoyed that as well. But the two eighties um, sort of like time capsules of the city that you won't see anymore. Uh, one, when they go to the paper mache, parade float warehouse there's a gigantic reagan head that the, the camera fixed yes. on for a couple seconds which i thought was great that was great and then also the climactic action where the killer is finally confronted is at the dixie beer factory and you can kind of see the beer getting bottled inside that yeah. place that doesn't exist anymore it ain't dare no more as people like to say i here. was gonna say ain't dare no more I so yeah like there are a couple ones. things that have changed i think the thing about like that i came back to in my head watching this movie uh, about that Ronald Reagan head is how Clint Eastwood like delicately like strokes it (laughs) (laughs) and it like is like in context of like real life Clint Eastwood it's like oh my god (laughs) I mean this is did you really have to do that this is sort of like what I assume you were saying from your description of the beekeeper last time Brandon this is sort of like a conservative fever dream of a movie 
where everyone is in constant sexual danger and the city is a place of such like criminality and danger all the time and only the cops can yeah. stop it. It, it. it does have that element of it. But the cops are the source of the menace too, though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and that was why I, I came around on it. Yeah. And Genevieve Bajold offers a different point of view, I think. Yeah, she definitely does. The rape center character is extremely interesting in that way because, yeah, I mean, she originally doesn't want to talk to cops at all. So, you know. Yeah. The movie would have been suffocatingly macho without her. Yes. And we should also say, Allie, we have to point out Genevieve Bujold. Yeah. Was originally cast as the first Janeway on Voyager before she was replaced by Kate Mulgrew. Uh huh. Damn, I, I'm more of a Dead Ringers fan, uh, so I can't speak to that. But uh, yeah. I just wanted to give you time to get the bell. Oh, it's it's out. Okay, all right. <laughs> what the other thing that's interesting about this is, um, because I immediately thought of the Golden State Killer. Like, if that is the killings that this is based on, um, we didn't know the Golden State Killer was a cop until very recently. So, if this movie, uh, yeah, is about that, it definitely predates that knowledge. By the way. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I mean, I guess one could have surmised. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people thought so, but mm, cops didn't take it seriously. Anyway. I will say when I was in San Francisco, I felt like an affinity for that city. I haven't felt anywhere else I've traveled to. You know, I've enjoyed being other places, but I've never like felt like, oh, I could live here um, if I could, you know, afford to live there, which the feeling was basically like, oh, this is basically New Orleans, but sprawling infinitely in every direction. There's just like a hundred different New Orleans is stitched together. Um, so I kind of feel like it, it would be easy to port that story over to this location, specifically because what cities in America are hornier than those two cities? Like Nowhere. the sweaty, lubed up sex that Eastwood has in this movie could only be in maybe New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans. You can set this yeah. in Boston, you know? No. <laughs> you could you could set it in Miami. Maybe. Oh, Miami. All right. Um, Vegas, if you're nasty. Yeah. <laughs> Vegas would be too trashy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Much love for Vegas, but that's too trashy. <laughs> I mean, this did give me a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings about all of the things that I used to get up to when I lived there. I mean, none of them were murderous, obviously. That's not what I'm talking about. But the sleaze. I participated in and was privy to and party to a lot of sleaze. But I don't think that anything gave me a warmer, fuzzier feeling than right at the beginning, whenever they're playing football in the street and there's a Winn-Dixie bag sticking out of the trash can. I was like, yes, <laughs> that takes me back. That makes me wish for home. Okay, I'm not a football fan or any of that, but some of this old Saints gear, pretty good. Yeah, he wears like a trucker hat that's like Saints branded. I love that trucker hat. I also I loved all of the um the Dixie Brewery employees yes. shirts that were like nothing's more New Orleans than Dixie beer. Dixie beer. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot too. I do I I I want to touch on the children um who are present in this movie, his two children. His eldest daughter in this movie is played by his real life daughter. Whoa. And she is great in this. She really is. She really is good at playing like, uh, you know, very uh, like stuck between two households, very much like adoring of her father, 
not really approving of like how her mother has moved on so quickly. A little precocious, but not in a cloying way. Yeah, in a way where she's clearly stepped up a lot too. Um, yeah, yeah very like mature. a little bit jaded about the world, but like not so much that she's lost her innocence until like the end, right. which is like why it's extremely kind of a sad sort of ending. And like, I think, you know, there are things about this ending, especially given like what happens to his daughter in which she gets it's implied that she's sexually assaulted and like by the murderer but like not murdered maybe the one instance where they let your imagination fill in the blanks in a way that like is really horrific it's horrible yeah Yeah. it's just implied because she's like in the hospital overnight like for days and you're like oh my god Uh, i didn't even think about that i was i was my blessedly my imagination (laughs) didn't bring that to mind but yeah you're right that probably is what happened I thought they were yeah. playing it safe, and then she gets counseled by Genevieve Bajol's character. I was yeah. like, oh, okay, mm, they're kind of going for yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, and that's part of, like, what makes the ending and him, like, catching the killer feel so much, like, less climactic or, like, any of that. Especially since he's realized, like, at that point, like you said, shouting into the mirror, like... It's this cultural problem that he knows he's a part of, you know? Yeah. And how do you tackle that? Or at least, you know, maybe I'm reading into it deeper than it should be. But yeah. especially arm in arm with the uh, rape center lady. Sorry, I keep I keep saying her that because I never I don't remember the character. Well, name. she's I'm she's sorry. she's made up. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know that I like the him being linked to the killer like that necessarily, because from what I could tell, he's not necessarily like feared and hated by all the sex workers he frequents. No, maybe they're yeah, a little they scared like of him, him, but you know, he seems like he actually actually pays the money and like is just yeah. like a good customer. They seem to want to tease him a whole lot. Yeah, because <laughs> he can't help himself, and that's the part of the movie that I do like is that like kind of impulse where he knows that he's addicted to transactional sex and he can't stop it, um, which is always a great plot uh, driver for me. Like I re- I really like that kind of feverish thing where he's supposed to be interrogating this tattoo artist who did the butt tattoo of one of the latest victims, but he can't help being distracted by the hot babe uh, getting a a fresh tattoo. And then he ends up having sex with her in like the next scene. Yeah. And what it has to be the sweatiest sex I've ever seen on camera. It is so just drenched in lube. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Dripping. Dripping. After he watches lube wrestling. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's where they picked it up, you know, just roll the barrel home. Yeah. I I kind of like that like none of the sex workers are like blamed for getting murdered in this. Like yeah. it's not like, oh, that's a hazard of the job, you know, or oh, maybe they should think about their career. It's it feels very like sex work neutral, if that's a thing. Yeah. The only the only way that it's ever negative about sex work is that like the death of the woman who was actually a nurse that he meets up with in like the bathhouse and hooks up with her death is treated like this Mm -hmm. big tragedy because she wasn't a woman of the night. She was like a, an upstanding citizen who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But other than that, you're right. They don't treat the sex workers as if they're at fault for what happens to them. And it kind of starts with them having a life outside of their trade. So like, yeah. The very first scene that we see is this woman celebrating her birthday with all her friends. 
And then mm-hmm. she's tracked by this, you know, cop in the quarter. And then after her death, we find out what she did for a living. So it's not like, you know, she is only a sex worker. Like she has a full rounded life. Yeah, that's right. She's not treated as disposable. You know, that's especially true. like we get the answering machine message from her parents. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, God. I don't want to give the movie too much credit, though. It's not like politically smart. It's kind of just no, like no. a sleazy. Um, how steamy can we make the French Quarter in this like erotic thriller era um, to the point where it kind of loses track of like reality towards the end? Like the killer in the last few scenes is wearing this leather gimp hood. Um, just to sort of play up the kinkiness of the scenario, and the movie's just kind of indulging in the environment, which in, in a way I'm not, I'm saying that like it's bad. It's not bad. It's just like uh, you know I don't want to give it too many points for being smart. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's definitely exploitative. Yeah, 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 it's definitely exploitative. I just I was surprised by that aspect of it. Like, it's not necessary. It's not a smart movie. I think one of the things that surprised me is like, if anything, I didn't think it was like mean or sleazy enough like there's not it really any blood at all right even in the scene where the killer gets stabbed like in the arm and in the fucking kidney like there's not blood really until yeah so he gets the killer gets run over by the train and uh clint eastwood is left holding his like bloody arm um which was hilarious actually um but yeah like i there wasn't a whole lot of blood you know we're not shown really the violence until like it's on um his girlfriend the the rape center lady i'm good with that i didn't need like women being attacked over and over again especially in a movie that's about a man's psychology Mm, like yeah yeah. i didn't want that like visual motivation especially if it's gonna be like a repeated thing you know apparently they offered this genevieve bujold role to susan sarandon and she didn't want it for that reason oh my god she thought that the violence against women was too casual. And she thought that like, she said apparently to Eastwood telling him, you know, in as many words, you know, you're a role model and you shouldn't be seen hitting women and doing these things to women in a movie. Yeah. And uh, the only erotic thriller from her that's coming to mind from around this time was white palace where she's just a nice waitress lady who has sex with a businessman. Um, right. So, I mean, I like where her priorities were because that's actually a much better film than this one. Um, I'm I'm still kind of middling on this movie. I yeah. I thought when I brought it to the Goodwill that I would never see it again. I'm surprised that it stuck with me mentally at least a little bit. But now that I've revisited it, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's fine. That's why I let it go. It's not like remarkable, really. Yeah, I was real lukewarm on it, and then at some point I was like, this is kind of bad, and then the cemetery chase scene happened and I was like, okay, well, I really like the way this is filmed and I really like this visually. So that kind of makes up for the parts of this movie that I was like, oh, it's kind of meandering and bad. But then, yeah, you get that cemetery chase. That's just like visually awesome to me. <laughs> uh, it was great. And I'll be honest, I think that I have a more positive opinion of this movie than y'all did uh, overall. Um, I was a little bit bored by it in the first like half hour. And then it really captivated my attention. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons that maybe I have a more positive opinion on this is I would like to propose that perhaps, Brandon, you are not correct. And that your recitation of this as fact that is common is not correct, which is that this is a neo-noir. I think this is a giallo movie. I don't think those are 
um, necessarily exclusive. exclusive. Yeah. Okay, maybe not. Especially because, like, Giallo, like, didn't it just start because of, like, crime books and, like, mystery well, books and crime yeah, thrillers? Yeah, mystery like, books in general. And not necessarily crime yeah, thrillers, so but I, yeah. That's I, what think, noir I think is it adapts well. well. Yeah, exactly. It's from those pulp mysteries. I, I think that... I mean, do we maybe maybe I hit the drum too hard on like trying to be dramatic <laughs> about it, and now we're we're fighting over like whether or not neo noirs count as you. Yeah, like like... You're just arguing with the man in the mirror, Brandon. Look at look at him. He's you. He's me. We are the same. I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, this is a Jalo movie. I buy it. You know. Yeah. Okay. The sort of color drenched sequences, like the neon lights on the street at night, the wetness of the streets. If there, like, whenever Argento wanted to make a movie in what he called featureless America, he made Trauma, uh, which I I don't care for very much because there's not much to it. And he is sort of making fun of Americans with that one because it's set in like you know the the midwest and there are no features everything is just like interchangeable but if you were to do a jalo movie in the united states new orleans is really the only place that it could happen mm-hmm. in the same way that like argento and his peers really capture this like classical architecture of like rome and various other cities in italy munich as well because that's uh some of the architecture in Suspiria, it's like set in Munich. Yes, yes. But it, the so, European nature of it, like everything yeah. in Europe is like, you know, 10 times as old as everything in the US at least. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to capture some of that like European aesthetic in anywhere in the United States as and have it be something that looks traditional, it's going to be in New Orleans. It's going to be the French Quarter. Like there was a reason that they were constantly shooting period pieces there whenever I lived there, even if the period piece was um, Abraham Lincoln uh, vampire. Abraham Hunter. Lincoln vampire slayer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had a I had friends work on that. So I'd also like to propose that uh, this movie is like Jalo in the way that um, it's a little boring, but the style mm-hmm. makes up for it. Yes, and the mystery ultimately doesn't matter. Yes, <laughs> it's all about yeah. the psychology of the detective. Yes, it just. Needs a longer title because every like kind of middle of the road giallo has like a really long title. Yeah, yeah. This one should be called um, "The Man with the Handcuffs Laughs Last." <laughs> yes. Or um, <laughs> the policeman's lost necktie. I do like that they bring in a like criminal psychologist for a walk and talk just to explain the tightrope title about how the killer's yes. walking the line between good and evil. Uh, yeah. That felt like almost like a uh, Jalo trope as well. Um, you have those mm-hmm. like long shots ADR'd in where like someone's speaking very like bad English uh, <laughs> from a long distance. So you can't see their mouth moving. Yeah. In, in a dub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. So between the architecture, the color, the nonsensical mystery, the unimportance of the mystery, all of that, I think that this is an American Jalo movie. So I would propose that, and also to that end, I did go ahead and give this an Argento Index score. Whoa! You want to explain what this is again? Yeah, I mean, it yes, only please. comes up every once in a great while. So I have seen every single film ever made by the Italian horror director 
Dario Argento. And that doesn't just include his um, horror work, although it's mostly that. It's also that I have seen his uh, TV movie that he made called Do You Like Hitchcock in 2005. I have watched his period piece comedy, uh, Five Days, or The Five Days, Les Cinque Giornata. And in the process of so doing, I put together a list of all of his recurring elements as they appear in each film, and then gave each of his films a weighted score of basically to decide which Argento was the most Argento. Um, and I started this project back in 2015, and I finished it in 2015. Um, and then and then two years ago, he made another movie, and I had to revise it. No one saw that coming. Yeah, I, yeah. I whenever that happened, I, I could not believe it. So essentially, each film gets a weighted score based upon how many films a recurring element appears in. So for instance... Immersion in Water occurs in 10 separate Argento films, like Four Flies on Grey Velvet, uh, Deep Red, Suspiria, Inferno, where she's in the sunken room, Phenomena. So uh, that appears in 10 of his films. So every time that that feature appears, that film gets 10 points. Um, The protagonist is a writer in four films. So that gets four points every time the protagonist is a writer. So I did use this to determine which Argento was the most Argento. Um, Originally, the number one spot was Suspiria, although it was supplanted with the release of 2022's Dark Glasses, which changed some of the scores. And now the most Argento Argento on the list is Tenebre, which I think is actually correct. That feels real. Yeah, Yeah, that feels accurate. So this one came in with, and that most Argento Argento with Tenebre, that has an Argento score of 113.5, where his like least Argento ended up being the card player, which is is an interesting one because that one I do think. Oh, I guess I'm sorry. No, the the least Argento Argento was Les Cinque The Five Days. But other than that, down towards the bottom are his Masters of Horror episodes, Jennifer and Pelts, and then The Card Player, which is pretty low on the list considering that it's very similar to some of his other works. It just didn't include any of his traditional hallmarks. So this actually does come in on the Argento Index slightly above The Card Player, uh, with the next one up the list being the worst movie that humans have ever made phantom of the opera <laughs> which i continue i like i'm still mad about it you're only making me more curious at this point you were like talking to the wrong people to call th- something the worst movie ever because we're just like oh well now i have to watch it i it's like somebody saying oh this this is the worst smell i've ever smelled and you're like well i kind of want to find out Look, the movie is a war crime. I can't stop you if you want to hurt yourself, but please don't. Would I enjoy Tightrope better if it had a score by Goblin? Of course. Yes. Yes, yes 100% yes. Yeah. I feel like I just had to ask that out loud and then answer the question, which was a softball to myself. Yeah. That's the kind of season I'm in right now. I'm not taking anything seriously. Uh, I think that's like the Tightrope sweet spot. It's, it's not a very challenging yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is kind of like lazy afternoon viewing. Um, if you have a a room dark enough to watch it in, because most of it is night scenes. 
<laughs> but uh yeah i was gonna say that was my problem is i did watch it on a lazy afternoon and it was so dark yeah close those shutters you know nurse your yeah. ash wednesday hangover with all of the lights off dead yes. to the world and get out your favorite pair of handcuffs uh strap yourself to the headboard um Play try away. some lube wrestling <laughs> we should as well we should circle back on this that we were talking about earlier ali um off like before we started recording do not be fooled. This movie is not on Tubi. If you look it up, it is not on Tubi. The information panel will tell you that it is on Tubi. If you go into Tubi's app and you try to look for it, it's not going to be there. It's a whole different type. It's a yeah. It's a completely different movie. So much more lube. <laughs> <laughs>